people of God, let's open our Bibles once again to 1 Kings chapter 18 as we work our way through the Elijah portion of 1 Kings. You will remember that we concluded last week with this great question in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, in which Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now we come to verse 22 of 1 Kings 18 to the end of the chapter. Let us pray. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask in the name of Christ our Lord that as we also live in a day of apostasy, as did Israel and as did the church in this time, that we living in a day of apostasy would see ever in this passage Jesus Christ, whose guardian grace preserves his people, and that we will see something of what it means that God, the Lord God of Elijah, is our God our covenant God, covenant-making and keeping God, promise-keeping God as well. And that as we partake the elements this morning, we would remember that this new covenant that is confirmed with Christ's own blood is a covenant ordered in all things and sure, certain for your people, saved by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. 
And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The word of the Lord. The gauntlet was thrown down. There is to be a contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of the Lord who has spoken the word of God. A contest between Baal and the true prophet of the living God, which is no contest at all because God is God. But unbelieving wicked Ahab is ready to be done with that menacing prophet Elijah. Failing to see his own sin, he blames God's prophet for the drought, and in wanting to be rid of the Lord's prophet, Ahab wants to be rid of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose word he speaks, the true prophet of his people. He despises, this king despises the truth, despises the word of the living God. Each, the Baal followers and Elijah, the Lord's prophet, will prepare a bull. The one who sent fire to consume the sacrifice would be acknowledged as the true God. Oh, well, Baal is the storm God, is he not? Surely he can do this, can he not? But then the storm God has not sent rain for three and a half years. First thing we see as we come to the text is the false prophet's display. These false prophets took their bull, they prepared it for sacrifice. They prayed, O oh, Baal, hear us, how sad, in Israel's land where the word of the Lord has come, they are praying out loud to Baal. When God's people cry to the Lord, our cries do not die away unheard. On the basis of covenant mercy, we cry to our God who always hears and answers his people. 
But these prophets of Baal worked themselves into a frenzy. They leapt and danced around the altar. And we read in verse 26, there was no voice and no one answered. Why was there no voice? Why was there no answer? Because Baal does not exist. Just like all false constructs of humans on which we depend, these constructs may or may not be sophisticated, but they are just as false as Baal. Baal, answer us, they cry out, but Baal cannot answer because there is no Baal to answer. So Elijah left them alone till around noon when he began to mock them. Well, maybe you need to be louder. Uh, Maybe he cannot hear because he's preoccupied. Perhaps he's meditating, traveling perhaps. Uh, Just raise the decibels. Maybe he he can't hear you. You're not loud enough. So they begin to cry out all the more. The mocking is really heightened in verse 27 when Elijah says, for he is God. It's just sarcasm and mockery. The mockery of the prophet is the mockery of the word of God. It is prophetic of the mockery that the Lord will show at the end of time when the Lord will laugh and have in derision all of those who have opposed him. That's what Psalm 2 teaches us. Do you remember the mockery that the Lord showed to the idolatry of those referenced in Isaiah 44? Read it on your own sometime, Isaiah 44, 9 and following, but at the end of the chapter, he says half of it, that is to say this wooden idol, this thing they've made, half of it he burns in the fire over The half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god, the same wood over which he's cooked his meal. So the false prophets cry out all the more. It's an amazing thing. The prophet mocks but our Lord Jesus Christ will be mocked. The Lord Jesus allows himself to be scorned by idolaters so that we might be free from the mocking judgment that is coming upon idolatry at the end of the age. We read in verse 28, though, they cried out aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. The false prophets worked themselves into a total frenzy and they cut themselves. Eastern morning customs were forbidden to the people of God because it, it involves self-cutting. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 14. And somehow, they thought that they were cajoling the gods, that they were appealing to Baal and to, and to others. They're out of their minds with frenzy. It is the opposite of the order that the Holy Spirit brings into the lives of the people of God and into the worship of God. What a sweaty, bloody, ugly mess is here. And so this is what Baal worship is all about. And just think, their God was just an extension of themselves. What you see there is really what is found in the heart. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is just an expression of ourselves. Whatever our idol may be, idolatry is simply an expression of what is in our own heart. What you see as they limp around and dance and cry out and cut themselves and sweat and bleed is their depraved hearts coming out. Second thing we see is the true prophet as he repairs the altar of the Lord. The true prophet repairing the altar of the Lord. Elijah gathered the people close in. He wants them to see what he's about to do. In contrast to the frenzy of the false prophets, Elijah quietly fulfills his calling. 
the prophet is totally serene. He knows the Lord. He will confront them with the truth, the word of the Lord. Elijah then repaired the altar. Now this may have been one of those old altars dedicated to the worship of the Lord before the beginning of the temple, the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, More likely, it is a recent one that God's true people had used, being unable to go to Jerusalem, that had been thrown down by Jezebel. Remember, the people in the northern ten tribes, and that's where this is happening, did not have access to the temple in Jerusalem. Jezebel may have destroyed this altar along with others. Elijah, in chapter 19, verse 10, references her destruction of the altars. So he used 12 stones to rebuild. Why 12? Because what is happening here is for the whole of the people of God. What divided the kingdom if not idol worship? What will happen here today, Elijah is saying, is for all of the professing people of God in Israel and in Judah. 12 stones, 12 tribes. Eventually, 12 apostles. 12 names inscribed. On the doorways into heaven. Revelation 21. This broken down altar. It just represented the relationship between Israel and the Lord that is broken. Syncretism always leads to the destruction of true worship. Elijah will not use Baal's altar. The altar of Jehovah must be repaired. And the two altars must stand over against each other as incompatible, antithetical. There's the true and living God, and there is false worship, and they must not be mingled. And then Elijah prepared the sacrifice, and in bringing the sacrifice, Elijah was saying, I am worthy. We all here who are gathered are worthy of eternal death, and there must be a propitiation. There must be a sacrifice for sin, and that sacrifice must be totally consumed by bringing this Atoning sacrifice, he is pointing to the fact that we need a substitution to take our place and to die for us. He's pointing to Christ who would come and give himself a sacrifice for his people. The primary need was not rain. The primary need was not crops. The primary need was Christ. The primary need of everyone is the forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt, Someone who would be a substitute in our place to bear the wrath of God for us. He's pointing to Jesus. Elijah did not stop there. He dug a trench around the altar. He commanded four jars of water to be brought. Precious water, scarce water. That this water be poured over the sacrifice. Moreover, he did not stop there. There was a second pouring. And there was a third pouring of the water, 12 pots of water, drenching the sacrifice, running down into the trench that he has dug. A wet, soggy sacrifice, wet, soggy wood, mud surrounding the sacrifice. From where did the water come, some critic asks, in a time of drought? Well, who knows? From the Mediterranean, perhaps. It's not that far away. Maybe it was salt water. 
from this location on Mount Carmel. Some think that the location on Mount Carmel, Carmel was El Mukracha, which is a place on Mount Carmel that's kind of like an amphitheater where a large number of people could be gathered, and there was a special source of water there that perhaps had not dried up. Or maybe it was just scarce, scarce, precious water that had been saved, maybe by the false prophets or Ahab or by the, by the prophet himself for this occasion. The point is the altar is drenched through and through. The Lord, not Baal, is in charge here, so the altar is drenched, and now it's ready. What is the prophet doing? When the fire comes, it must be clear that all the consuming of the sacrifice happens by God himself, by no human means. He is demonstrating that the consuming of the sacrifice could not happen by any human endeavor. S.G. DeGraff says, well, that was Elijah's way of showing that the restoration of covenant fellowship could not come from man's side. And that is always the case. That is true. If we are saved, God must do it. We contribute nothing to our redemption. It all comes from God who consumes the sacrifice. The sacrifice must be offered and consumed in our place. This sacrifice on Carmel could take no match and could take no torch. And people of God, only the sacrifice that was burned with the flames of God's holy wrath on Mount Calvary will do for us sinners. He is the sacrifice that the Lord has given. He is the sacrifice that the Lord has sent. He himself has come in the second person of the Trinity. And the Lord himself has consumed that sacrifice that we might be saved from our sins. And if ever a sacrifice seemed less ready to be consumed on an altar, this one presented by the prophet of the Lord was it. But the prophet is acting at the word of the Lord. He is doing what God has instructed him to do. He did not come up with this on his own. It's not his plan. It's God's plan. So now the prophet in humble dependence turns to the Lord in prayer, which leads us to the third thing we see in the text. The true prophet's prayer and the Lord's answer. Now listen to Elijah's prayer once again, verses 36 and 37. Will you look at it? And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You see, he's pleading the covenant. Let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Oh, the wonder of true prayer. Make bold requests on the basis of God's covenant promise. Seek my glory in prayer, the Lord says to his people and says to this prophet. The first thing to note about this prayer is the complete contrast of what Elijah has just prayed to the way in which the prophets of Baal sang out to their false god Baal. In their frenzy, in their dervish dancing, in their manic prayers, the false prophets cried out to nothing. And for whose glory does Elijah plead? For the glory of the living God, that the Lord may be known among his people. The result, our God is a consuming fire. 
the Lord heard his servant. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, licked up the water in the trench, dried up the mud. It is a sheer miracle of grace. The Lord accepted the sacrifice. But remember always, this sacrifice points beyond itself. And that on Mount Calvary, there was a greater miracle than this. When the Savior was consumed, totally consumed in the melting heat of God's wrath upon our sins, and the Lord accepted His sacrifice in our place. And as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, it is that that true sacrifice that draws us. The Lord sent His Son as a sacrifice. The Father poured His wrath upon Him. He poured out His own wrath over His Son And Elijah's sacrifice could only point the way, could indicate the need that we have for an atonement for our awful sins. But only Christ can make atonement. Salvation is in no other. So the false prophets have been thoroughly routed. Their sacrifice on the altar was not consumed with fire, but the sacrifice placed on the repaired altar by the Lord's prophet Elijah, drenched with water, was consumed with fire from heaven, And in this way, the Lord showed the miracle of His grace and pointed ahead to the great sacrifice for sinners, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a victory for the Lord's prophet. What a triumph for God's Word. Well, what happened next? Brings us to three results. That's your fourth point. Three results. The first result is this. The people acknowledged the Lord. The God who answered by fire would be acknowledged. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They shout out. But here, here's the real sadness. Though undoubtedly there was a part of the remnant of the people of God who truly believed in Him, who cried out, The Lord, He is God. Most of those undoubtedly who cried out, The Lord, He is God, didn't mean a word of it. Oh, in the moment... They were seized by a certain sense of awe. They knew the Lord indeed was the true and living God, but in the end, what difference did it make in Israel? Was there a genuine, massive turning back to the living and true God at this time? No, there was not. So they saw this sacrifice, they saw that it had been covered with water, they saw that God received it, consumed the sacrifice, and they did not turn to the Lord. The remnant turns, but most of them did not. You know, there's something more than beholding an external miracle that is needed to change the sinner's heart, and you better listen well. There is needed here the new birth. The sinner's heart, our hearts, are by nature so corrupt and so sinful that even fire from heaven will not change him. There must be a divine intervention, a supernatural gift of faith that comes from the Lord alone. So what about you? Are you one who says, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God, I know that He's God, I know the Bible is true, but you do not trust Him in your heart. You do not believe Him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so there's always that character, you know, who says, if I could just see a miracle, I read about this and I see this miracle, I read about miracles in the Gospels, 
if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. My friend, Jesus rose from the dead. What more do you want? Nothing is more sure in history than that. If I could just see a miracle, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. You know the story of the rich man and Lazarus, don't you? There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. We read in verse 19 of Luke 16. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from, from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This man is in hell, and there's no getting out, and he will be there forever. So he begins to think about family members. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oh, if I could just see a miracle. If someone would come back from the dead, if someone would come back from hell, if someone would come from heaven... Someone has come from heaven. The Lord Jesus, who died for sinners and who rose from the dead. Don't you see? He has come. The final prophet has come. And he says to us, Here is the way you know me. As the Holy Spirit illumines this page and opens your heart to receive it, and if you will not receive Moses and the prophets, and now we may see, say, if you will not also receive the gospels and the epistles, if you will not receive this word, you will not believe though someone rose from the dead. You may have an intellectual knowledge, but you will not have saving faith until the Holy Spirit works that faith in your heart so that you embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. It is not true that if I only saw a miracle, I would believe. That is not true. And it was not true for those gathered here on Mount Carmel either. We do not seek ongoing confirmations. The ultimate confirmation of God's covenant word has come, and it is Jesus Christ. He has come. Greater than fire from heaven has come. Elijah, praise, show your glory. 
Christ prays, I have glorified you, bring to faith those whom you have chosen on the basis of my word. That's the first result, the response of the people. There's a second result from this fire from heaven, and it is this. The false prophets were put to death. Look at verse 40 of 1 Kings 18. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah ordered the false prophets to be put to death. Today we excommunicate false prophets. In either case, it points to the same reality which is the ultimate judgment to come. Vantavir, the Dutchman, says, It was of the greatest importance whether or not Elijah would be faithful here. The issue was whether the church of the Old Covenant would survive until the fullness of time and bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So it was necessary that the false prophets be put to death, that that little remnant of the true church be preserved so that the Christ could come to be our Savior and Redeemer. To what does this point when God has his prophets slay the false prophets? To what does that point? It points to a day of judgment that is coming. It points to the hell that the false prophet will endure and that his punishment will be hotter than those who believed what the false prophet taught. Hebrews 10.27, the day is coming, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And as you look to that day, my friend, a day for us that is filled with awe, are you also filled with reverent confidence? Can you say, I can look to that day in which Jesus Christ will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel? But I also say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Can you speak with confidence as you look to that day? But let me add that those who stand in pulpits and preach themselves and preach false doctrine and preach heresy and preach especially, I'm talking about soul-damning doctrine, the day is coming according to God's word when God will slay the false prophets. A third response to this fire from heaven. Rain. Rain. Precious rain on this dry and parched land and on these thirsty people. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat, drink, for there's the sound of the rushing of rain. The prophet could hear it, nobody else could. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go up again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. There's the sound of the rushing of rain, says Elijah to this wicked king Ahab. Some undoubtedly did turn to the Lord. For some it was temporary. Nevertheless, the Lord is sending rain. We read in 18 verse 1, And after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And now he does what he says. He does what he says. He said he would do it. 
But Elijah also prayed for it. Elijah obviously was a praying man. Do you remember James 5, verses 17 and 18? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So that you see once again that God gave Elijah a promise, and he prayed for it anyway. That is what prayer is, an offering up of our petitions for things agreeable to His will. Prayer is the means that God has appointed, or one of them, for the accomplishment of what He has decreed, so that when you pray, you are entering into the very decretive purpose of God to fulfill what He has determined He will do for the salvation of His people. What a glorious and wondrous thing is this mystery of prayer. Now take a moment and notice how Elijah prayed there in verse 42. He bends himself to the ground. He puts his head between his knees. I mean, the man's in a certain sense, I think, in anguish, don't you? As he prays for the people of God and for their need. De Graff says, Elijah bowed down before the Lord and bent over with his face between his knees, completely humbled and broken before the Lord. He was searching his own heart and thinking of the sins of the people. There he confessed all the unrighteousness and prayed for the Lord's grace in the form of rain. Thus he was an intercessor who himself bore the sins of his people. But if Elijah was in a certain sense an intercessor bearing the sins of the people of God, don't you see a greater than Elijah has come? The return of rain of covenant blessing was an answer to a consumed sacrifice foreshadowing the coming of the new covenant blessing through the final sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest and intercessor. The seventh time the servant goes out and then he reports, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. There's the answer. Tell Ahab, get out of here, so that he won't be captured and caught by the rain. Let's get Ahab moving toward Jezreel before the rain comes in torrents and prevents him, for the Kishon would act like a a great conduit of flash floods and torrents. It would be very, very dangerous. And so in verse 44, he says, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop him. And then in the following verses, In a little while, while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, there was a great rain. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's get Ahab moving toward Jezreel before the rain comes. And then as he goes in his chariot with his horses, here comes Elijah. He's pulled up his garment, and he's running in front of the chariot all the way to Jezreel. That's 16 miles No doping, no training. Wouldn't you like to have Elijah on your track team? (laughs) None of that. Elijah the prophet outruns the king's chariot. He did this because the hand of the Lord was on the prophet. It was a distance of 16 miles running ahead of the king, ahead of his chariot, Never has there been a sprinter in all of history like this prophet Elijah. 
the word of the Lord. Here's the point. Elijah is the speaker of God's word. The word of the Lord is running in front of the king. When they arrive in Jezreel, the Lord's prophet arrives ahead of Ahab the king. This rain that is falling is the Lord's victory, not Ahab's. This rain that is falling, this is an answer to the word of God, not even Ahab's repentance. So let me bring it to conclusion. And I want to mention three things to you. First, this conflict on Mount Carmel in a day of apostasy when people didn't believe, when there was wickedness all around, when the church was in desperate times, represents a greater conflict than simply what happened on that day on that mount. It represents spiritual conflict. The principalities and powers that are behind all true conflict. I read Wednesday night this quote from Abraham Kuyper. Listen to it. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggles drone in its backlash. Do you understand that there is a conflict going on? A conflict between truth and error, good and evil, the forces of light, the forces of darkness, that God wins, but He has ordained that in history there be this separation that comes about and you, the people of God, are involved in that conflict in your everyday lives every moment. There is never a moment in which you are not involved in that conflict. Don't forget it. The second thing I want you to take from the text is the absolute necessity of the atonement. A better altar than that of Mount Carmel was set up. Come through faith in the Son to the Father, through the Son who knew the fiery wrath of God, who is at once our altar, our priest, and our sacrifice for His people. The fire from heaven passed by this unholy people and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. And so, when Christ died for His people, the fire of God's holy wrath that would come down upon us fell upon Him in our place. And without it, we are lost and undone. The necessity of the atonement. If you are lost, you need a Savior, and there is only one Savior, and that is Christ. And then take with you this, the triumph of God's word in a day of apostasy. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what has, this is what has happened because God has said it would happen. And in the midst of this apostasy, you cling to the word of God, cling to the promises of God, cling to the ways of God, cling to the life of God. Keep yourself separate from the eclecticism, the the syncretism of our culture. Keep yourself in your heart, in your mind, because the battle is in the mind. Keep your minds separate from the apostasy of our culture. What an abomination idolatry is. But idols are nothing. 
and people are giving up their lives to that which is nothing and will not last. And be assured, as you see, persecution and trial and struggle and the church, the church, the poor, struggling church, even in our own land, very little true gospel biblical preaching, very little true confession of faith. Be assured of the victory of the Lamb. Just as surely as the Lord destroyed the prophets of Elijah, our Lord Jesus will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. Do not allow your lives to be determined by what you see, but by what God's word says. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. People of God, this text and all of these Elijah narratives call upon you and me to live in the reality of the truth that there is no other God beside the Lord. There is no other God beside the Lord. Persevere. Hold fast to the truth. There is no other God but the Lord. God's people said, Amen. Amen.